On February 8th, 1983, James Fitzgerald ran his hands through the mane of his world champion colt, Shergar. Every night, the horse groom checked on the colt to make sure it was healthy and, most importantly, safe. Later that evening, Fitzgerald lay in his bed trying to fall asleep. But suddenly, he heard grunting and shuffling coming from downstairs. His eyes shot open and he rushed down the steps to see what was going on. The rest of his family was close on his heels. When he reached the front door, Fitzgerald found a masked man pinning his son Bernard to the floor. Meanwhile, other men wearing balaclavas pointed their machine guns at Fitzgerald, his wife, and children. The groom put his hands up and begged the intruders to put the weapons down and spare them. Instead, they cocked their guns and gave a surprising order. One of the masked men demanded that Fitzgerald lead them to the horse. They weren't interested in his family. They were there for Shergar. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on the kidnapping of champion racehorse and Irish legend Shergar. In 1983, a group of masked men abducted the prize cult from his stable. The horse was never seen again and his fate remained a mystery. This episode will explore how Shergar's quick rise to the top of the horse racing world led to his eventual kidnapping, and will follow the police as they embarked on a wild goose chase to find the legendary colt. Then we'll investigate who could be behind the abduction. Some theorists believe the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, concocted the scheme, hoping to acquire a healthy ransom. Others believe the IRA was working for someone else, Muammar, Gaddafi, and the Libyan government. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Horse racing can be hugely profitable. In his racing career, recent Triple Crown and Breeders' Cup winner American Pharaoh made over $8 million from his victories alone. But prize money is just the tip of the iceberg. The real earnings come after the racing is done. When a male racehorse retires, he's put out to stud. Breeders can pay a fee to have their female horses mate with him, hoping to pick up some of that prize-winning magic. While all studs command a fee, owners of champions can demand exorbitant amounts. For instance, though American Pharaoh made $8 million from his races, he had the potential to make tens of millions in one year of breeding alone. This was the kind of massive windfall that the Aga Khan IV was looking for when he inherited his family's world-class stable in 1957. 
Aga Khan IV was the spiritual leader of the Nizari Ismaili, a small Muslim sect living in more than 25 nations. With the title came religious influence, tremendous wealth, and in his case, prize-winning horses. One of the farms Khan now owned, called Ballymany Stud, is in a rural area just 30 miles west of Dublin. Here, the spiritual leader staff bred and trained and raced valuable thoroughbred horses. But it would take about 20 years before the Aga Khan had a cult worthy of his family's legacy. In 1978, Shurgar was born. Aside from his white feet and matching blaze across his face, there wasn't much to distinguish the horse from the rest. As a yearling, he didn't stand out. According to the farm's head trainer, there was nothing to make you pick him out and say, I want him for my yard. Much to their surprise, over the next two years, Shurgar posted multiple high finishes. His trainers wondered if the horse could be poised for a breakout. As Shurgar began his three-year-old season, the Aga Khan knew the months ahead would be the most important of the horse's career. They'd invested a lot of money and countless hours into the colt's training. If he won a race or had a few good runs, he could command thousands of dollars in stud fees later and make the investment worth it. On top of that, Ireland has a unique respect for horses. They have a big horse racing culture. So if an Irish horse became a champion, it would be a major story. First though, Shergar would need to prove himself. And there was one upcoming race that would either make him or break him, the Epsom Derby. Dating back to 1780, the race is considered one of the most prestigious in the world. Unlike the Kentucky Derby, the Epsom is run on luscious grass rather than dirt. If Shergar finished in the top three at Epsom, that would be enough to make him a valuable stud during breeding season. Before the race, one better had the horse at a 33-to-1 long shot to win the Epsom. But those odds didn't remain steep for long. In a workout before the season, one of Shergar's jockeys took him out for a practice race with a few top-notch competitors. The jockey could tell Shergar wasn't running as hard as he could, but he still managed to blow the other horses away. That's when the trainers realized they had something special on their hands. Sure enough, Shergar secured two wins in his races leading up to the Epsom Derby. His 33 to one odds dropped and he became the favorite going into Europe's most prestigious running. On June 3rd, 1981, the Aga Khan sat in his box, watching Shergar load into the starting gates. A 19-year-old jockey named Walter Swinburne sat atop the colt and gripped the reins. The young man knew he rode a magnificent horse. He wouldn't have to whip Shergar into a first-place finish. All he'd have to do was steer. The starter fired his gun. They were off. Swinburne rode Shergar up into fourth position, but didn't push it. This allowed him to keep pace with the leaders while also drafting behind them. Gradually, Shergar moved up to third. As the pack approached the final turn, the crowd grew louder with cheers. Swinburne guided Shergar to the outside, where he ran level with the other two leaders. Then, 
the jockey felt his horse kick into an extra gear, as if Shergar knew exactly when to make his move. With a final burst, Shergar pulled beyond the pack, one length ahead, then two, three, four. Within seconds, he stormed ten lengths ahead. The crowd erupted, and the commentator was dumbstruck. Shergar ran so far ahead of the field, the broadcaster exclaimed, quote, You need a telescope to see the rest. Shergar slowed into a trot and crossed the finish line to a raucous ovation. The Aga Khan lifted his arms and cheered. His horse's margin of victory, 10 lengths, was the largest in Epsom Derby history, a record that still stands today. And most impressive of all, it didn't look like Shergar had broken a sweat. Such a win set the horse up to become the pride of Ireland. Over the next few months, Shergar was both a superstar at home and across the world. When the colt returned to Dublin, locals lined the streets to cheer for their hero. However, police stood between the crowds and the colt. Even admiring touches weren't allowed now that he was worth tens of millions of dollars. With Shergar at the top of the racing world, offers were lining up. Some people wanted to purchase the horse outright or pay exorbitant fees to bring him to the United States for breeding. The Aga Khan had something else in mind, though. He saw a different opportunity to capitalize even more on his investment. Khan kept the horse in Ireland and sold percentages of Shergar's ownership. 34 shares were distributed among investors, netting $15 million. And on top of that, the Aga Khan allocated six shares for himself so he could also enjoy any coming profits. Together, the group of owners formed what was known as a syndicate. In the 1982 breeding season, Shergar mated with 44 mares, impregnating 42 of them. Simply put, he was a busy horse. This move picked up nearly $3 million for the syndicate. The shareholders planned to charge even more the year after, hoping to make an additional $5 million. Unfortunately, though, they weren't the only ones with a plan to make money off Shergar. In addition to working with trainers during the day, Shergar required maintenance and care at night. Each evening, he slept inside the barn of his horse groom, James Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald's stable was humble. Despite Shergar being worth millions of dollars, his quarters were modest and lacked any real security. Regardless, Fitzgerald was confident in his care. So on February 8, 1983, the groom checked in on him just like any other night, then walked home and crawled into bed. But at 8.40 p.m., there was a knock at the door. Fitzgerald went downstairs to discover a group of men with machine guns. They held his family at gunpoint until they clarified that they were there for the horse. One of the intruders made the groom lead Shergar out of his stable into a trailer attached to the back of a truck. Then the vehicle drove off into the night. The remaining kidnappers brought the groom back to his house and waited until the trailer was long gone. After an hour, they blindfolded Fitzgerald and threw him in the back of their car. Before leaving, they ordered his wife not to call the police or they'd kill her husband. 
For two hours, Fitzgerald lay in the dark, cramped trunk, wondering if he was going to make it out alive. Then the kidnappers suddenly stopped, opened the door, and threw him to the curb. Their instructions were clear. If he wanted Shergar back alive, the syndicate would have to pay $2.6 million. They also gave him a code name they would use during the ransom phone calls, so the owners would know it was them, King Neptune. Lastly, the men instructed him not to reach out to the police. They implied that if he did, they'd return for his family. Once the kidnapper sped off, Fitzgerald called his brother for a ride home. Once home, he comforted his distraught family and made calls to Shergar's veterinarian and manager. They phoned the Aga Khan. He couldn't believe what had happened. He'd never heard of a horse being kidnapped. It was a stunning realization of what was at stake. Not only was there money to be lost, but he'd grown attached to his prized horse. He was heartbroken. Shergar's team was hesitant to call the police based on the threats, but after eight hours, the team couldn't stand it any longer. Perhaps they didn't quite believe the kidnappers would take violent action against Fitzgerald's family. So they were going to do what had to be done to save their horse. Coming up, the police begin their hunt for Shergar. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1981, Shergar dominated the Epsom Derby and became one of the most famous racehorses in the world. Yet just two years later, at the peak of his fame, kidnappers abducted him from his stable in Ireland and demanded a $2.6 million ransom. At first, threats from the kidnappers dissuaded Shergar's team from contacting the police. Eight hours passed until they decided to act. In that time, the authorities lost their best opportunity to find the champion. They hadn't been able to search passing horse trailers or put up roadblocks. The thieves could have gone anywhere. All the officers could do was wait and hope the kidnappers got in touch. The investigators didn't have to idle for long. Before the kidnapping was even leaked to the press, a call came in. They claimed they had the horse, but strangely, they demanded a much smaller payment, just around $52,000. The authorities thought it could have been a prank, but the caller used the correct code word, King Neptune. 
While the lower ransom amount was certainly bizarre, it was nothing compared to the next request. The kidnappers would only negotiate Shergar's release with three specific British racing journalists. They instructed authorities to fly these reporters to the Europa Hotel in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and await further instructions. The police called one of them, ITV correspondent Derek Thompson, at three in the morning. Listening to their request, a chill ran down his spine. He was a horse racing journalist. He never expected to be negotiating a hostage crisis. At this point, many had already begun to suspect who was behind the abduction, the Irish Republican Army, or IRA. At that time in Northern Ireland, the tensions between Catholic nationalists who wanted the province to become part of the Republic of Ireland and Protestant loyalists who desired to remain in the UK were at their highest. The IRA fought for the nationalists, often by planting bombs across Northern Ireland. Kidnapping people for ransom was a primary tactic of theirs. Maybe they were also stealing horses. Despite his fears, there was no time to argue. On February 10th, two days after the kidnapping, Thompson and two other racing journalists landed in Belfast. A throng of media followed them as they made their way to the hotel. Upon walking into the Europa lobby, Thompson received a message from reception. He had a call waiting. Thompson picked it up and heard a cold voice on the other end. It told Thompson that they were watching him from across the street. The journalist's heart thumped against his chest. He glanced outside and spotted a row of cars with dark windows. The call could have been coming from any one of them. He wondered what he'd gotten himself into. The caller then instructed Thompson to lose the press and drive to a horse farm 30 miles outside of the city. This was no easy request. Thompson was being watched by throngs of camera crews and dozens of other journalists. But he had an idea. Thompson snuck across the lobby and slid through the kitchen entrance. Dodging cooks and waiters, he made his way to the back door and out of the hotel where a car was waiting for him. Within minutes, he was on the road, heading out of town. For a while, they drove quietly on a single country road. Trees surrounded them on all sides. There wasn't another car for miles. Then, all of a sudden, five armed men jumped in front of the vehicle. The driver of the car slammed on the brakes. The car ground to a stop. Outside, men wearing balaclavas and carrying machine guns waited for them. Thompson panicked. Maybe the IRA had sent a squad to kill them or take them hostage too. One of the gunmen walked to the driver's side and motioned for him to roll down his window. He asked if he was Derek Thompson. Hesitantly, he said he was. Instead of ordering him to get out of the car though, the man smiled. He said they were the police. Thompson took a deep sigh of relief. He had no idea how the cops caught up with them, but he was glad they did. The officers escorted Thompson to the farmhouse. They set up call tracing equipment and told Thompson to try to keep the thieves on the phone for over 90 seconds. That way, they'd be able to pinpoint their location. Soon, the kidnappers called. 
Thompson picked up and the police officer started a stopwatch. The cold voice on the other end of the line demanded the ransom immediately. But Thompson first asked for proof the horse was still alive. As they spoke, an investigator kept count of how much longer they needed for the trace. Ten more seconds and they'd have him. But 85 seconds in, the kidnapper abruptly hung up. He knew they were trying to trace the line. For the next eight hours, Thompson fielded around a dozen calls from the thieves. Each time, the criminals hung up a few seconds short of 90. Still, the officers kept trying. All they needed was one slip-up. At around 1 a.m., they finally got a break. Thompson managed to keep them on the line for 95 seconds. Afterwards, he asked the investigators whether they tracked it. A policeman shook his head and said that the man who traces the calls had finished his shift at midnight. Thompson could only laugh. He waited for another call, but eventually he and the officers fell asleep. About six hours later, it finally came. This time, though, they didn't provide another set of instructions. Instead, it brought tragic news. The caller said there'd been a terrible accident. Shurgar was dead. And before Thompson could ask anything else, he hung up. Both the police and Thompson were stunned. Initially, some of them refused to believe it. They assumed the calls had all been hoaxes. However, the likelihood of this was slim, given that the caller had phoned the authorities before the press even knew about the kidnapping. And he'd used the correct code. Only the real thieves would have known that information. The reality was, Shurgar was likely gone. It was a bitter pill to swallow. Shurgar had catapulted into the limelight from an underdog to an Irish hero. Now the country would face the loss of a national icon and one of its greatest athletes. However, something else was unfolding behind the scenes outside of the police's gaze. A day before, Shurgar's manager, Guillaume Rion, received an anonymous call. This caller also provided the code word and demanded $2.6 million for the horse's release, the original asking price. Perhaps Drion was speaking to the real culprits. Afterwards, the syndicate held a conference call to discuss the situation. Some wanted to get Shurgar back, no matter how big the price. Others worried that handing over the money would set a bad precedent. It might inspire groups to kidnap other racehorses for hefty ransoms. The committee was torn. But the Aga Khan and the other shareholders did agree on something. They told the kidnappers that they wanted proof that Shurgar was still alive. A few days later, on February 12th, the syndicate retrieved several Polaroid photographs from a nearby hotel. In the pictures, Shurgar looked alive and well. In the foreground, someone held up a newspaper from the same day. Miraculously, it seemed like the horse was unharmed. Their champion was still alive. But the question of handing out ransoms remained, and most of the shareholders were still reluctant to pay. The next time the kidnappers called, Drion asked for more time to get the money together. This request irritated the thieves. The man on the line said, if you are not satisfied, that is it. Once he hung up, 
the syndicate never heard from the culprits again. Still, Irish police held out hope that Shergar was still alive. They offered six-figure sums for information about the champion's whereabouts. They scoured the countryside for his remains. At one point, officials even hired psychics to divine the horse's location. Nothing worked. After about three months, the investigators gave up the search. Ultimately, Aga Khan and the syndicate lost millions of dollars. But for Ireland itself, the loss was greater than any amount of money. The Irish hero had put the country on the world stage. Now he was gone, and his whereabouts a mystery. Coming up, we try to uncover Shergar's true fate. Now, back to the story. In the wake of the February 1983 kidnapping, Irish authorities tried to rescue the racehorse Shergar from his kidnappers. But when his owners failed to cough up the ransom, the perpetrators ended negotiations, and Shergar was never seen again, at least officially. In the decades since, various theories popped up about who took the horse. Some Irish people were skeptical that a true Irishman could steal such a respected figure only to murder him. In fact, many believe those behind the plot weren't from Ireland at all. The culprits must have been from another country entirely. And maybe they'd kept Shergar alive. This brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi ordered Shergar's capture due to a personal gripe. To understand how Libya got involved with a horse racing scandal in Ireland, we need to briefly touch again on Ireland's most renowned modern conflict, the Troubles. In the 1960s, two religious factions dominated Northern Ireland, Protestantism and Catholicism. For decades, Catholic nationalists wanted Northern Ireland to unify with the Republic of Ireland. Meanwhile, Protestant loyalists hoped to remain a part of the United Kingdom. When British troops marched into Northern Ireland, the nationalists formed the IRA to become the true defenders of their cause and resist British influence. That's when they caught the eye of a foreign admirer. Muammar Gaddafi took power in 1969, around the same time that the Troubles began. The authoritarian dictator was ambitious and sought to increase his power any way he could. He saw the IRA as kindred spirits and believed in their cause against their British oppressors. So he offered to help. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, Gaddafi sent the IRA guns and explosives for their battle against the British. And because of this cozy relationship between Gaddafi and the IRA, perhaps the Libyan dictator ordered Shergar's capture for personal reasons. Specifically, Gaddafi may have viewed the Aga Khan as one of his rivals. And if that was the case, maybe he was desperate to hurt him. Gaddafi considered himself a leading voice of Islam, which may have made him all the more resentful of the 12 million or so followers the Aga Khan had. If the dictator could embarrass the Aga Khan or ruin him financially, maybe he'd increase his hold on the Muslim community. Gaddafi certainly had the international connections to make that happen. 
For instance, in 1983, former Irish Prime Minister Charles Haughey, a major supporter of the IRA, traveled to Libya to meet with Gaddafi. While reports claim the meeting only concerned the beef trade, it's possible they were really there to discuss a different kind of animal, racehorses. And perhaps Gaddafi asked the former prime minister to get him Shurgar. In the months after Shurgar's abduction, authorities couldn't find the racehorse anywhere. By May, they had no leads and no suspects. One Irish broadcaster claimed to have first-hand knowledge of the situation. The insider claimed that Libya had the resources to conduct a kidnapping operation and that Gaddafi hated the Aga Khan enough to do it. If Gaddafi ordered the IRA to abduct Shergar, the dictator would have cost the spiritual leader tens of millions in future earnings. Not to mention, the Aga Khan's reputation would be tarnished by the loss of his prized racehorse. Of course, the IRA wasn't in the business of doing things for free. There's another big piece of evidence that could support this claim. Two years after Shergar went missing, Libya sent more weapons to the militia. Perhaps this signified an exchange of some kind between Gaddafi and the IRA. Maybe they'd given him Shergar, and in return, he repaid the favor with guns. There may be an eyewitness account that backs this up too. Apparently, Gaddafi was seen riding his new champion racehorse back in Libya. Maybe the legendary Shergar didn't die after all. Despite the drama during his kidnapping, he may have lived out the rest of his days peacefully, enjoying the Libyan sunsets and eating the finest hay that Gaddafi had to offer. While it's a nice image, especially compared to the assumption that Shergar was killed, most of the evidence for this theory is circumstantial. There's no definitive proof that Gaddafi actually wanted revenge on the Aga Khan. And whoever saw Shergar in Libya never took a picture, so there's no way to verify it. But there is an undeniable link between the IRA and the dictator. In 1983, he met with a former Irish prime minister who heavily supported the militia group. To me, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that two years after Shergar's disappearance, Libyan guns flowed into Northern Ireland. Maybe trade with the IRA was reinforced after Shergar was delivered. I doubt it. If Shergar was taken to Libya, he would have been pretty young. He could have lived 20 more years, and yet there's never been any photographic proof. Plus, no one on the inside has come forward mentioning a tie between Libya and Shergar. That's true. But remember, both calls with the police suddenly ended and no deal was struck. Some authorities believed the kidnappers weren't actually interested in negotiating. Maybe they were just distracting Irish police and the press while they transported Shergar to Libya. We can't prove it, but it would make sense. It's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Gaddafi certainly had a connection with the militia, but I don't believe it extended to the Shergar incident. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I'm going to give this theory a 2. You make a good case. While Gaddafi had the resources and maybe a potential motive to abduct Shergar, there's no proof he did it. 
I do find the connections between the two groups a bit suspicious, though, so I'll go just a little higher and give this a three. Libya may not have been involved in the kidnapping, but the IRA definitely could have been. As we mentioned, many people suspected the IRA stole Shergar and demanded a ransom. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The IRA abducted Shergar and hoped to get a ransom, but something went horribly wrong and they ultimately killed the horse. At first, Sean O'Callaghan was a ruthless commander in the IRA. Over the years, though, he felt increasingly guilty over his role in the organization. By 1976, after years of assassinations and bomb plots, he became an informant for the Irish police. And in 1988, he turned himself into the British. In front of interrogators, lawyers, and eventually juries, he told them everything he knew about the IRA's inner workings. Eleven years later, he published an autobiography, and one of its stories stands out in particular, the kidnapping of Shergar. In the early 1980s, the group would raise around three million pounds a year. IRA leader Kevin Mallon was always looking for additional sources of income. Mallon was uncompromising in his devotion to the cause. He would do anything if it meant furthering the IRA's interests. And so kidnapping was well within his bounds as a quick way to get some cash. In 1981, Mallon's men abducted the son of a multi-millionaire supermarket executive and held him for a ransom of $900,000. The man was eventually released. Many believed he made it out alive because the IRA received their money. Two years later, in 1983, Mallon came up with the idea to abduct Shergar. As long as everything went according to plan, they wouldn't have to harm the creature anyway. They'd receive their money and let it go. Shergar's expensive stud fees were well publicized, so the group knew how valuable the horse was to the syndicate. The best time to move was before the breeding season. That way, the owners would have extra motivation to pay the ransom as fast as possible. According to O'Callaghan, to ensure the colt's health and safety, the militia even recruited a veterinarian to look after him. But right before the kidnapping took place, the vet's wife discovered what he was doing. She threatened to leave him if he went ahead with the scheme. And just like that, the group had no doctor. If anything went wrong, Shergar was on his own. It was too late to back out. On February 8, 1983, a group of IRA members drove to Ballymany Stud and abducted Shergar. Then, they allegedly drove him to a small farm outside a townland called Ogra Sheeling, which translated to Meadow of the Fairies. The village was sparsely populated, a perfect hiding place for the IRA. O'Callaghan said the IRA officers had Shergar in a horse box. However, Shergar was in unfamiliar surroundings with unfamiliar captors. He neighed and kicked up on his hind legs. The men tried to calm him down, but the horse panicked. While trying to escape, the colt fractured his leg. When a horse breaks their leg, it's a very difficult injury to recover from. Their bodies are heavy, making it painful and dangerous to stand on the wounded leg. 
and usually when a bone breaks, it shatters, making surgery nearly impossible. And so, without a veterinarian nearby to treat the leg, the men believed they had no choice but to shoot Shurgar. However, an anonymous IRA source had a slightly different and even sadder explanation. He claimed the group kept Shurgar in the stable for days while the police raided dozens of the militia's strongholds. The whole time, Mellon tried to negotiate with the syndicate. At their request, he even sent proof that Shurgar was alive. But still, they wouldn't hand over the ransom. Days passed without an agreement. It soon became clear to Mallon that the owners had no interest in paying the 2.6 million pounds for their horse. Out of patience and worried that there was no way to return the horse without getting caught, the IRA leader called the syndicate and told them they were out of time. He hung up the phone and ordered Shurgar shot. The IRA members went to the horse's stable and executed him. The men at the scene covered their faces in shame. They knew they'd done something horrible. Malin ordered the horse's body disposed of so no one would be able to find it. And in decades of searching, no one has discovered his final resting place. At first, this account might seem fanciful, especially with a town name like Meadow of the Fairies. But since the 1980s, some supportive pieces of evidence have come to light. Though the press didn't report it, Days after the kidnapping in 1983, police discovered a submachine gun magazine at Ballymanny Stud that matched the exact kind used in previous IRA operations. Then, in 2002, a police superintendent who took over the Shergar case years before answered questions about O'Callaghan's story. While he didn't confirm the entire tale, he did admit that the IRA informant had the facts right. Both O'Callaghan's story and the department analysis were the same. According to the cop, Shergar had indeed been killed on the 11th or 12th of February, just like the former IRA member said. The police officer didn't reveal how the department knew when Shergar died, but he implied that the investigators knew a few things the public didn't. Why this information hasn't been shared, we can only guess. I will say there's a lot more firsthand evidence for this IRA theory, but it all hangs on two accounts, that from informant Sean O'Callaghan and the police superintendent's confirmation of his tale. It's difficult to discount O'Callaghan. He doesn't seem to have any motivation for making it up. However, it does seem odd to me that the IRA never claimed responsibility for the kidnapping. Usually, a militia would publicize its role even in a fairly gruesome crime. You're right, but maybe they didn't come forward because they knew it would cast them in a bad light. After all, they killed Ireland's most famous horse. If that got out in the public, it could have tarnished the IRA's reputation, even among their supporters. It does sound like they were embarrassed by the ordeal. On the other hand, Shergar's body was never discovered, which makes it impossible to confirm the leg injury and that he was shot. Still, I think the fact that the police found a gun magazine known to be used by the IRA at the scene of the crime is telling. 
Plus, the police superintendent confirmed the details. While we can't know for certain whether he was injured, I'm pretty convinced the IRA kidnapped Shergar and later shot him to death. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm giving this theory a 9. There's definitely a lot of good evidence to support it. After all, O'Callaghan had first-hand knowledge of the IRA's operations. When he became an informant, he was trusted to give credible information. While I'd still like more physical evidence, I'm also going to give this a fairly high rating and go with a 7. To this day, no one knows exactly what happened to Shergar. The police have scoured farmland dozens of times, searching for the remains of the famous racehorse. That uncertainty has made it easier for some to cling to a more peaceful hope that maybe Shergar escaped his captors or was set free. Perhaps he spent the decades since roaming the Irish countryside. The truth is, this was no ordinary horse. He was a heroic athlete who won the Derby by an astounding 10 lengths. Shergar was, quite simply, a legend. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Shergar, amongst the many sources we used, we found Milton C. Toby's book, Taking Shergar, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Ben Caro and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.